Have you wanted to do some food writing, hardcore journalism, policy issues, restaurant reviews, recipe writing? It's a broad field. We talk about it. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Daniel Schumacher, food journalist and editorial director of Taste of the South, Louisiana Cookin', and Southern Cast Iron at Hoffman Media. Welcome, David. Hi, Liz. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I am curious to know how and why you got into food writing. Indeed. About 20 years ago, when I was working at my college newspaper, I realized that I loved helping people tell their stories. I also realized that I did not like the pace of the newsroom, and I didn't think I had the patience for the book production cycle. So magazine seemed like it would be a good fit for me. And it has been. So you've got a master's degree from Columbia School of Journalism? It felt like a master's degree at times, but it was, I went to the Columbia publishing course. Oh, okay. It was a, it's a six-week course. It's, it's nowhere near a master's program. Okay. But it is, it is a, an immersive boot camp that uh, you squeeze everything you can out of six weeks in the middle it's- of New York and And I could see where you would have this intense experience that's not academic, but very practical. Indeed. So when that was finished, you went into magazines? So in in the time that transpired between my undergrad and that, um, I knew that I wanted to focus on food. I'd always been a very enthusiastic eater. And I figured that if I wrote about food, I probably wouldn't go hungry. So from there, I got started at Food Arts Magazine, which was a beloved industry magazine. Uh, out With of the Michael Batterberry. Yes. Yeah. Like beloved, amazing mentor at the very beginning of my career. Lucked into a short-term position at Gourmet Magazine, which was another fantastic part of my life that I was a little bit too young for to really make the most out of. Mm-hmm. But I got to serve some of my food to Ruth Reichel, which was absolutely horrifying and a lot of fun. <laughs> Did you and, have any culinary oh, training? Did you have any culinary training? No, I, I was coming at that from the journalism side rather okay. than the trained chef side. Okay. And all right, so then after Ruth Reichel? So at that point, I was in New York City working three jobs, one of them overnight. And I knew that if I wanted to be in food magazines, I would most likely either be in New York, Des Moines, or Birmingham. I had been to the Timex Southern Progress campus in Birmingham. Yeah. Tell us why those were the three centers. So those at the time and to still are the epicenter of food and lifestyle publishing. Okay. Uh, with 
New York City having the most food magazines, Des Moines being the home of Meredith, which has been recently bought by a different company, and Timex Southern Campus in Birmingham, which used to be Southern Progress, which published Southern Living, Cooking Light, Health, uh, things like that. And of course, Alpha Media was also in, in, in Birmingham. Okay. So went to Birmingham to work for Time Inc. Uh, my, the magazine I was with, Cottage Living, shut down during the uh, recession in 2008. And I set off doing a series of writers workshops with a friend of mine who was my editor at Cottage Living. And when I was doing that, I met the founder and publisher of Louisiana Cooking. And while I was in Birmingham, I started to fall in love with New Orleans. So in 2011, the editorship at Louisiana Cooking opened up and the founder and I got to talking and six weeks later I was in, in New Orleans. Wow. And so how long did you work there? So I started at Louisiana Cooking at the end of the year in 2011 and was the editor there until 2020. Hoffman Media bought Louisiana Cooking in 2012. And I have been with them ever since. Okay. So were they big were there any big changes in Louisiana cooking when it was bought by Hoffman Media? Yes and no. Uh, so it happened about six months into my editorship there. So I was still getting my feet wet with the founders process. And then Hoffman Media, which is by no means a huge company, but much larger. It's got about 100 people in Birmingham and now has uh, a few dozen more people in Ohio. Hoffman Media has a lot more resources than the original publisher had. We have a half dozen photographers, a dozen people in the test kitchen who uh, make recipes for the 11 brands. Well, not all 11 brands do food, but the half dozen or so brands uh, for the company that are food-based. We've got stylists and a giant prop room and hundreds of cast iron pans. So the I think most of the changes that happened after the Hoffman, uh, after, Hoff, after Hoffman Media became involved were things that the readers really didn't see. It was, it was more process than product, the, the, though the product became much more refined. So I've always thought that Louisiana cooking was just as much its own standalone magazine and its standalone way of thinking as um, a magazine that, say, is devoted to Italian cooking or a magazine that's devoted to some kind of cooking as opposed to just geographically about Louisiana. Um, and so... Um, did you find that the people who were interested in it were like expats Louisianians or just other people who were interested in Louisiana cooking? It's a little bit of everything. We are distributed nationwide and with the diaspora of folks who have lived in Louisiana, we do have readers all over the country and all over the world, but still most of our readership is between Texas and Florida along the Gulf. Mm -hmm. Many of our readers live 
in Louisiana, but not much more than half, really. So, I mean, we have a lot of readers who are far flung. And I try to give them a little bit of everything. I try to give them traditional recipes, fun takes, a bit of history. Thank you for speaking with me last week about Creole cream cheese for the July, August issue. Yes, sir. Because we have a lot of different readers. We have people who have been cooking this way, learning from their grandparents, mm -hmm. and people who visited the city for three days and happened to pick up a magazine and got hooked, like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so how is Louisiana cooking different from Taste of the South and from Southern Cast Iron? How are they different? The Taste of the South is probably the most broad mm -hmm. since it encompasses all like 13 Southern states. Louisiana cooking and Southern Cast Iron are similar in that they are ultra niche. Uh, in Southern Cast Iron, everything is made in cast iron. And Louisiana cooking, I'd say, is in between the other two on the niche scale because we cover New Orleans, we mm -hmm. cover Lake Charles, and we cover Monroe and Shreveport. I mean, as as you know, the, the food in, in North Louisiana is much more Southern influenced than the food of Southeast Louisiana. And we get to have a lot of fun. Like there are so many traditions and techniques and uh, incredible personalities around the state that we get to to work with and share with the readers. And so what do you think, um, what do you think you have really gotten out of being a food journalist? Because you know, there are, I kind of divide food journalism into two parts. There's the part where you talk about cooking and you have recipes and you might have some um, information about like the history of techniques or the history of a place where this is or history of ingredients or whatever. And then there's the other kind of food journalism that I think is more akin to investigative journalism where you're talking about oh, what's up with the James Beard Awards and what's going on with the alternative meat development and, you know, all these kinds of things that are related to food, absolutely, and that's food journalism, but it's really not recipe-oriented. So how did you kind of pick one side or the other and how much of the more investigative things have you done? We are much more firmly on the lifestyle side of that journalism equation. Uh, I, I sometimes, I, I don't want to say bristle when I get, when I'm introduced as a journalist, because I am. But when I think of journalism, I think of that more investigative format. Whereas we work in more of the lifestyle aspirational format, where we are dealing with facts and respecting truth but presenting it in a way that most people wouldn't live every day. Uh, did that answer your question? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really more interested in you and what you have done. So have you ever done any of the investigative journalism? I mean, I, I know if I can just talk about this myself, I I tend to write 
what I think or feel or have experienced or whatever. And if somebody comes to me and says, I'd like you to write a story about blackberries, or I'd like you to write a story about oysters and where I have to go and investigate how these oysters were grown and the whole oyster industry and stuff like that, I might not want to do that. Whereas if you said, oh, join us on this oyster boat and then write about it, then then I could absolutely do that. So I'm I'm really not a journalist, obviously, because to me, it's more just my little essays and things. So that's really what I'm asking you. Have you written those investigative pieces? No. The short answer is no. I'm much more comfortable doing the join us on the oyster boat and then write about your experience. Okay. Uh, and, and part of that is my nature. But the other part is that the magazines that I've written for and run just don't have the word counts where you can really get like dig into that meat. Mm-hmm. There's only so far you can get with 800 words. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And so what about the breadth of this? How do you, do you have editorial meetings? How did you decide, all right, this is what the next meet, the next issue is going to have. Um, how do you stay ahead of trends? Because I know you're working on things months in advance. And, um, and how do you predict what people will be interested in? It is always changing. We begin our concepting process about a year in advance. Uh, for Taste of the South, we're having our 2024, our first 2024 meeting next week, which is which will be the middle of May. And once we have hammered out a basic schedule, it's not seven stone. We just, we use it as a guideline to move forward as things change, as trends begin to emerge, as we identify things that we think people should be thinking about we we can always re restructure throughout the year and then when it comes down to production we we take photos and write recipes about six months before the issue date so it is very much christmas in july and watermelons in january we do try to shoot ahead so we get real stuff in season but yeah but it's pretty hard to get you know snow on the ground in july and things like that so I guess you have great things about Louisiana. It's green (laughs) most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, but maybe Virginia is not. So if you're doing Virginia and West Virginia, you know, you have to think about that. You could always, always set Christmas in South Florida or something. (laughs) You cannot always set Christmas on the beach. It is fun though. That, that, That is an aspirational Christmas of mine. I'd love to do Christmas on the beach. Yeah, I think it would be a whole lot of fun. All right. So I'm really thinking, all right, how do you prepare for this? In other words, yeah, you're going to have editorial meetings and people are going to contribute their ideas, but what do you do on your own as a way to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on? In addition to reading newspapers from around the state and keeping up with what other journalists are doing, I'm talking with chefs all the time. I mean, I, um, I probably speak with a dozen folks a month throughout the state and have my ears on the ground, like, yeah, ear on the ground that way uh, to see what they're doing, to see what things are important to them. Uh, 
you know, like Lafayette for interest, for instance, is just fascinating to me. Like the the creativity that's there, and it doesn't get as much. I mean, people in Louisiana know that there's stuff going on there, but it doesn't get nearly the play that New Orleans does. So, but you know, um, there's something about having things that are so chef oriented that it doesn't really play in your home kitchen um you know so how do you keep that balance so that people don't feel like i i I mean i really don't want to just read about chefs i want to know about what people other people are doing what they're growing in their backyards um how the the whole landscape of the table is changing because of what people are doing at home how do you balance that chef orientation, which is an easy, I mean, I'm not trying to say it's not something you should do, but it is an easy way to say, okay, I'm going to talk to my chef's network. They're going to have some kind of idea about what's going on. But, you know, if you think about the history of food, chefs are a very new part of it. And, um, you know, I'm always the one who will tell you if you ask me, where's the best gumbo in the city, it's going to be at somebody's house. It's not going to be at a restaurant. And so um, what? how do you balance that? You just said the exact words. It's about balancing. Whenever I'm speaking with anybody or reading anything, I'm putting it through the filter of how how will people make this at home? Will people make this at home? And how could this help people make what they're already doing better because they're a large subsection of our readers want very traditional Louisiana food they want their boudin they want their gumbo they want their jambalaya if you put some tomatoes in it you can get rid of the pitchforks and torches but that's how Louisiana is everyone has their own favorite recipe they, they have their favorite gumbo already. Am I going to, to sway them to a new gumbo? I might, but my hope with the recipes, and I, if you want to talk more about recipes, I'm happy to do that, but I know you've done that recently, uh, is that people use it as a springboard. They get inspiration from it. They don't get bogged down with, whether it's three cups of tomatoes or five medium tomatoes, and they can look at what they're already doing and figure out how to keep it fresh. Or, or how, to, how to incorporate some new idea that you introduce into what they're already doing. Indeed. Do you find that that, that is something that you learn about because people write to you? Or do you, how do you get the feedback? Our, our readers do not hesitate to tell us when <laughs> when we've done something they like or when we do something they do not like. So it comes from all different sides. We get emails, we get letters every once in a while, we get Facebook comments. Um, you know, in the, in the connected world, we can get feedback based on how many people like certain things on Facebook. So even when it isn't um, a direct feedback of someone saying, oh, I liked this beignet finger that you dipped in the chocolate sauce we can see if it we can see how it does and how people like it and that you know informs us moving forward too about what sorts of things people seem to like 
Yeah. And so do you find that the people who are reading Taste of the South, which is that broader um, group of people, are as invested, let's say, as the people reading Louisiana Cooking? They are. Uh -huh. They are. Uh, of, of the three, I think Louisiana Cooking has the most vocal readership. But we, we get lots of feedback from all of them. And is there a difference in the way you, let's say, approach Southern cast iron? Is that is that also something that you find? I, I mean, how is that different, say, from Taste of the South? I mean, obviously, because it's cast iron. Because but... it focuses on cast iron. But yeah, of course, the Southern cast iron has more personal stories, I think. Uh, cast iron collectors, people who don't just have the three pans that they use, but they are looking for interesting uh, older pieces. I, I don't like to say unique because I don't think there are many unique cast iron pieces since they're molded. But I suppose as they get older, they become more rare and a more special find. So we have more stories about collectors and the act of collecting and the act of the uh, the process of maintaining and uh, restoring, uh, restoring, restoring, reseasoning. Basically, the, the way these people express their 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 love for and their dedication to their cookware by the way they treat it. Mm -hmm. um, so the cast iron people are very are a really interesting bunch as well. Yeah, so I could imagine too that if you have a really unusual piece of cast iron, that you might not even have a recipe that you could use it for. I mean, if you've got a certain kind of popover pan or something that's cast iron, um, your popover recipe that you have that you're using some other kind of pan um, might not work in the cast iron, or you have to know whether how hot to make it and all that. I could I could really see where cast iron is. It's it's definitely it's its own its own animal and how far outside of literal cookware do you do you do because i know for example at the museum we have a cast iron brazier and inside of the brazier it, it has um notches on the side where you can put a canister now the canister is not cast iron the canister is um it's either tin or aluminum I think it must be tin and you can flip open this canister and put your coffee beans in it. Hold, you know, there's a little lock that allows you to keep the flap shut and the flap has holes in it and you can in the brazier, which is cast iron, you have coals and you turn it to uh, roast your coffee beans. And then the steam can come up through the holes in it. And that is cast iron, but it is not actually a cooking implement. You don't cook in it. The cast iron holds the coals. And uh, anyway, is that something that you would ever include in your magazine or is that too um, kind of marginal? No. That is the sort of thing that I would include in the magazine. That okay. is that is close enough to food. The food would not 
exist in this case without the cast iron around it. Right. So to me, that would count. Okay. Because you could, of course, roast your beans directly in a cast iron skillet, but um, that, you know, that's a very kind of cowboy way of, uh, of handling it. But nevertheless, you could definitely do it because, but I also think that cowboys didn't use that much cast iron because it was so heavy. Too heavy, yeah. They, they did use iron pans, but they weren't cast iron. They were much thinner. Um, it's, it's, oh, I love that. I could see where that would be a rabbit hole that would be really easy to go down. <laughs> what is the museum's cast iron collection like? Well, we have quite a bit of cast iron that's been donated to us. We have a, f a few um, cast iron um, um, corn stick um, holder, you know, uh, places where you, it looks kind of like corn when it comes out um, and different kinds of that and different designs of that. We have regular Dutch ovens and large skillets and just, I, I would say, just the most, the most usual kinds of cast iron, I, I would say, is what we have. We've relied almost entirely on people donating to us. And um, so... We don't have as broad a collection as somebody who might really be intentionally collecting cast iron, but it is something that we are very aware of. And we um, will often um, say at least once a year, have a class on how to maintain your cast iron or what to do when you inherit a cast iron skillet that's been in somebody's garage and has rust in it and whatever and how to restore it. We, we always do that at, at about once a year and it's always a very popular program. My grandma's cast iron was gotten rid of because it was rusty. Oh, no one consulted me. Ah, uh, that's, that's a real loss, especially the family connection and everything. Mm -hmm. That's really, really a shame. Uh, so do you have people in the cast iron community then outside of the South? We do. Uh, we do focus our efforts on the Southern region and Southern cooking, but we do so much of the cast iron was produced just outside our typical geographic range mm -hmm. that we do, we, we do talk about that as well. And do you, and you're talking about new cast iron, new cast iron and old. Uh, there are quite a few newer foundries in South Carolina, for instance, and Pennsylvania that we cover often. They make really gorgeous stuff. I, I've seen some really beautiful new cast iron, which I just find to be really interesting. And also, I've seen cast iron that seems thinner than some of the really old cast iron. And I wonder, I've, I've never cooked on that. Um, I wonder how that would be different than some of the older, older cast iron. And I have to imagine it would heat up faster, but it would also probably be a little bit more brittle. It may not have the staying, the, the staying mm -hmm. power, but I mean, I haven't investigated that. And so also um, just looking at all three of these magazines, are there any more magazines? Like, do you, I know that Hoffman Media has other magazines that are not directly 
food magazines, um, although they may also include recipes and whatever. Do you oversee those? So I only oversee the the, the ones we spoke about. Um, there are the expansions that the company has had over the past few years have been in uh, quilting and sewing and uh, and homes. Uh-huh. So the Cottage Journal and Southern Home are two of the our most popular new titles, although classic sewing uh, is just gangbusters. Like there aren't many paper products on the market right now for people who like to sew and quilt. And our, they have found a very incredible following. Oh, well, that's really wonderful because I, I love magazines personally. I mean, you know, I have stacks of magazines all over the place. And I buy old magazines, you know, somebody's getting rid of a box of all these magazines that they've collected. It might be two years worth in a, in a, a gar not a garbage bag, but like a, a grocery bag or a, um, um, a, a box, just an old box. And they are selling them for 10 cents a piece or whatever. And I just buy the whole, the whole box. And then even though some of it might not be timely, you know, these aren't news magazines. These are always some kind of old magazines every once in a while you'll find some on on our doorstep at the museum where people will say here take these and they just drop them off and then um even though we don't collect magazines for our um uh, for our research center because so many magazines are online now. And so there's no point in physically having a copy of something that you can read online. Um, it is also wonderful when you find uh, that 1952 McCall's or the, uh, the, the proceedings of the Good Housekeeping Institute or something like that. I mean, it's really, really exciting. So um, uh, we, 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 if somebody says, I have gourmet magazines between this date and that date. We're likely not to take them because we actually have bound volumes of gourmet magazine when they used to do that. Um, so it's not going to help us to have more loose copies. But um, some of these other things have just been priceless kind of um, views of what was going on at the time. And, and that's very exciting. I, I've liked that a lot. So what do you think about the future of magazines? Things are changing. And I don't think that print magazines will go away, but I think that they will probably become less frequent and more expensive. Um, they'll be more of a luxury item than a everyday thing. Mm -hmm. You've seen it with gourmet and food arts and you know how many other dozens of magazines that have closed over the last 10 or 15 years but i think the ones that are feeling it the most are the very broad focused lifestyle magazines and for 15 years i've been saying people stopped carving things in stone when it didn't make sense anymore uh -huh. and it looks like in my like during the period of my career i'll probably find out how that looks uh -huh. but I think that people, there is something about paper. There is something about holding it and being able to save it and go back back to a dog-eared favorite thing and open it up and set it on the counter and work with it. But 
it will change. The magazines may get bigger. They may get nicer. And there could be good uh, ramifications as well. So, all right, I'm going to ask you one more editorial question because one of the things I hate is I hate doing everything online. And, you know, it seems to, the more editing you do with little balloons and uh, every editor that goes through it um, has made all these comments and then you try to answer the comments and fix things. And then the thing kind of jumps on the page and it won't sit still anymore. And you still don't necessarily have a good sense of what it's going to look like on the page. And I hate that. Um, I want, you know, especially editing a book or whatever, I want to just print it out and I want to make all the marks on the page because I can go back two pages easily and uh, I can put a sticky note on it. I can, there are all these things you can do to find it again. How do you go from what you're doing on a page that's on your computer to really feeling good about what it's going to look like? on a piece of paper? I often print things out. I, I don't print out every page of every magazine, but when I am comparing things, like when I'm comparing articles or trying to um, look at a few different things at once, it is just so much more helpful to print things out. Um, I do wish I had a tabloid size printer, but not yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's so much easier to lay a few things out on your desk or even pack a few things up on a cork board than sometimes going through a few screens. I'm right there with you, Liz. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Makes me feel less um, old. <laughs> so, all right. So what do you see as the future? Um, just the immediate future, what what are you seeing? Do you have ideas that you want to implement, different things that you think, um, you know, there's cross-pollination between the magazines? What What is it that you're seeing? More individual stories from, if, if we're going to talk about Louisiana cooking, more individual stories from people around Louisiana, more opportunities for people, particularly in Louisiana, to uh to inter interface with us mm -hmm. uh so more events uh more like live events and digital events and we may have more cookbooks we we're, uh, we're working with some more interesting personalities like john Foles has been in, in our magazine for a few years now uh justin durian jason durian the cajun ninja and very recently uh, home and native uh, Jean-Paul Bourgeois um, has has joined the company. So we'll be doing some more work with him. It's really exciting. And so do you try to balance the number of male chefs and female chefs and chefs of color and all of that when you're kind of telling the story? Yes. And I, I, did not just present a very well-rounded group of people when I listed some some folks off, but but yes, we do. Okay, okay. Well, I'm I'm going to start reading these magazines with a different perspective now, um, especially the cast iron. I'm uh, I'm particularly interested in that because every time there's something that's about 
collections um, in anything, you know, it's really useful for the museum to 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 know about it um, because the collecting world is such a source of artifacts, whether it's given as a gift or borrowed for an exhibit that uh, I'm, I'm just thinking as we're talking that that we should work on a cast iron exhibit that's done between SoFab and Southern Cast Iron Magazine. Wouldn't that be an interesting be exhibit? And uh, and we could travel it um, throughout the South. I think that would be um, a lot of fun. It could stay for you know two or three months in each place and just kind of travel around. We should, we should talk about that. We should. Well, thanks so much, Daniel. It's been great having you on, on Tip of the Tongue. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.